The House and Senate have both taken off for their August recess and will not return until after Labor Day. The Senate will return September 5, while the House will not return until September 12th. The latest on the Iran nuclear deal. A week and a half ago, Princeton University announced that Robert Malley had been hired to teach foreign policy classes at the university. Malley, you will recall, is one of the architects of the 2015 Barack Obama-Iran nuclear deal we so strongly opposed and which President Trump removed us from in 2018. Malley had been working for the Biden administration to try to put the deal back together again and get Iran back into compliance, but he had had no success. And then a few months ago, he had lost his security clearance and had been put on leave from the administration. And then we learned that the FBI had taken over the investigation into his mishandling of classified information, and official Washington became officially worried. A State Department spokeswoman insisted that Malley was still on leave, but his decision to go teach at Princeton University makes it appear as if his separation from the Biden administration may be more permanent than the administration would like us to believe. Now to the latest on illegal immigration. Illegal immigration is on the rise again. After a drop between May and June, when encounters at the southwest border dropped from 207,601, to 144,566, that's the lowest number for a June since Donald Trump was president. The spike occurred in July when encounters at the southwest border rose to 183,503. To put that in context, that compares to 40,929 encounters in July of 2020. Let me say that again. In July of 2020, the last July that Donald Trump was president, our Border Patrol registered 40,929 encounters with illegal immigrants trying to cross our border. In July of 2023, three years later, that number was 183,503. That's a 448% increase. Keep that in mind the next time you hear someone from the Biden administration bragging about their control of the border. Consequently, there are now more than 100,000 asylum seekers who have made their way to New York, and the city and the state have had enough. That's what New York Governor Kathy Hochul said last Thursday in a nine-minute address from the state capitol. Quote, New York cannot continue to do this on its own, she declared. It is past time for President Biden to take action and provide New York with the aid needed to continue managing this ongoing crisis. In other words, the liberal Democrat governor of a state that has declared itself a sanctuary state, a magnet, acknowledging the staggering humanitarian crisis caused by the arrival in her state of 100,000 illegal immigrants, is demanding that taxpayers in Utah and Oklahoma and elsewhere subsidize her efforts to manage the crisis. And what does she want in addition to federal taxpayer money? She wants work permits for the illegal immigrants. This is ridiculous. We wouldn't have this problem to this degree if the Biden administration would simply enforce the law at the southern border. That is the proper answer to the governor of New York. Now, can the 14th Amendment bar Donald Trump? On Monday, August 14, two law professors posted a law review article arguing that former President Trump was barred from ever holding federal office again because of the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. That language reads as follows, quote, No person 
shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president or vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof." End quote. Five days later, former Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge J. Michael Ludig and Harvard Law Professor Lawrence H. Tribe published an article in The Atlantic entitled, The Constitution Bars Trump from Ever Being President Again, the title of which accurately states the article's argument. Predictably, the left and the media went nuts, and I probably would have left it alone to be discussed on talk shows on MSNBC and among the women of The View if it hadn't been for the fact that on Thursday, August 24, a Florida lawyer by the name of Lawrence Kaplan filed a lawsuit in the Federal District Court for the Southern District of Florida, quote, seeking declaratory relief on the specific issue of whether candidate Donald J. Trump is indeed constitutionally prohibited from seeking a second term as President of the United States, end quote. Based on the allegation that he participated in what Kaplan calls an overt rebellion and or insurrection against the U.S. government on January 6, 2021. Kaplan's lawsuit declares that what took place on January 6 was an insurrection and argues that Trump was involved and therefore Trump is disqualified from serving as president. And since he is disqualified from serving as president, he should be removed from participating in the Florida Republican presidential primary in the spring of 2024. Kaplan specifically notes that Trump hasn't been convicted by any court on any charge of insurrection. In fact, not only has Trump not been convicted of insurrection, he hasn't even been charged with insurrection or even inciting insurrection. Kaplan nevertheless argues that because the January 6th riot took place and Trump was somewhere close by, he should be barred from seeking office again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. He argues that the court, quote, is abjectly required to find that Donald J. Trump's actions with respect to the January 6th uprising, and specifically the fact that he has been indicted for said acts, have effectively disqualified him from seeking the office of the President of the United States, end quote. In other words, sentence first, verdict second, trial third. Exactly the opposite of the way it's supposed to work. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't even play one on TV, but I can read the law and the Constitution, and I think this is absurd. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley agrees. Appearing on Fox News Channel a few days ago, he said in response to this question, quote, I think this is the single most dangerous constitutional theory I've seen pop up in decades. This is an argument that under the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump can be barred from running again, from ever holding office in the federal government, because he violated his oath. He supported an insurrection, a rebellion. Under the 14th Amendment, you have this bar on federal office if you supported or if you gave aid and comfort to an insurrection or rebellion. Now, of course, that brings you to the original question. What was January 6th? In the view of many citizens, myself included, it was a protest that became a riot. It was not a rebellion or insurrection, 
But that's a matter of disagreement between citizens. But Donald Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection, not even incitement. Special counsel Jack Smith charged him with a variety of crimes, like fraud. He notably did not charge him with even incitement in that second federal indictment, end quote. Nevertheless, the left and the media are frothing at the mouth, believing they found the magic bullet to keep Trump out of office. Stay tuned. Now to the spending fight. The Senate will be back in session next Tuesday, a week from tomorrow, but the House is still on its August break and won't be back in session until September 12th. Then the two chambers will be in session for four days a week for the next three weeks, leading up to the end of the fiscal year on September 30. That will give the House and Senate a total of 12 days in the session to find a way to fund the government for the next fiscal year, which begins on October 1. Let's review just for a moment. To fund the government, the House and Senate must pass and the President must sign 12 appropriations bills to fund the various departments and agencies of the government. The House has passed precisely one of those bills and deserves congratulations for that Herculean effort because the Senate has passed precisely zero of its 12 appropriations bills. Sadly, this is not unusual. This is, in fact, a repeat of what we see year after year. Neither House succeeds in passing all of its necessary appropriations bills on time, and the government cannot remain open and functioning without legal authority to do so. So the leaders in both houses give themselves an out, additional time to get their work done, by passing what's called a continuing resolution. Now, as its name implies, a continuing resolution is a resolution that basically says, for the duration of this resolution, we will continue spending in the next fiscal year what we were spending in the last fiscal year. Same program, same bureaucrats, same funding levels. And we will continue spending at the same level until we pass new appropriations bills that better reflect our current priorities. And then they use that additional time to pass the 12 spending bills through each house and then go to a conference committee on each of the 12 bills to reconcile the differences, right? Wrong. Don't be silly. That would require much too much work and much too much time. So instead, the leaders will get together and negotiate to put all 12 bills into one gigantic bill. They call it an omnibus. It's typically several thousand pages long, and there's not a single person on the planet who can read the entire bill because it's so long and dense. And to the leaders of both parties in both chambers, that's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature and not a bug because it allows them to slip all kinds of unbelievable junk into these spending bills, junk that would never survive inspection under the light of day. But jammed into a 3,000-page bill, released at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday, with instructions from the leadership that the chamber will be voting on the bill at 1 a.m. on Thursday, night after next, that is 26 hours later, but cleverly spanning three days on the calendar, it works magically. So the good news about a continuing resolution is that the spending levels are all set. There's no argument between the two parties or between the two chambers because the spending levels are already set. They were set a year earlier when the spending bills for fiscal year 2023 were enacted. The bad news about continuing resolutions? Well, the spending levels were set a year earlier by a different Congress. In this case, the spending levels for FY 2023 were set by a Congress that had a Democrat majority in the House and a Democrat majority in the Senate. 
If we were to continue to spend at those levels for the next year, it would be as if the 2022 elections had not taken place and Republicans had not taken the majority in the House. So that's the background for what's going to happen when Congress returns in September. Neither of the two houses has passed its 12 appropriations bills, so it sure looks like a continuing resolution will be necessary to keep the government open into October and November, while the two parties and the two chambers negotiate over spending levels for fiscal year 2024. Conservatives in the House don't like this prospect. They are determined to stand athwart history, yelling stop. On Monday, August 21, the House Freedom Caucus released a statement on its view of a continuing resolution. Quote, In the eventuality that Congress must consider a short-term extension of government funding through a continuing resolution, we refuse to support any such measure that continues Democrats' bloated COVID-era spending and simultaneously fails to force the Biden administration to follow the law and fulfill its most basic responsibilities. Any support for a clean continuing resolution would be an affirmation of the current FY 2023 spending level grossly increased by the lame duck December 2022 omnibus spending bill that we all vehemently opposed just seven months ago, end quote. Then they continued by declaring that we, they would oppose any spending bill that does not include the House-passed Secure the Border Act of 2023, that does not, quote, address the unprecedented weaponization of the Justice Department and FBI, end quote, and that does not, quote, end the left's cancerous woke policies in the Pentagon, end quote. There are about three dozen members of the House Freedom Caucus. In order for the HFC to take an official position, the group's rules say 80% of their members must agree. If my math is correct, that means at least 28 House Republicans have promised to vote against any CR that does not include those three conditions. Three conditions which might or might not earn majority support in the House, but would very likely not achieve majority support in the Democrat-controlled Senate. Speaker McCarthy has not really responded to this declaration by the HFC, he could decide to push through a bill that meets the conservatives' demands and sends it over to the Senate, where it likely wouldn't get a vote, or he might not. He could decide to put together a continuing resolution that does not contain language meeting the conservatives' demands and dare them to vote against it. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. On Saturday, August 19, two bombshell stories appeared in the political media, the New York Times and Politico, that went behind the scenes to give readers an inside look at the long-running discussions between Hunter Biden's legal team and the Department of Justice attorneys assigned to his case, and the construction and then disintegration of that sweet plea deal. Based on a massive leak of hundreds of pages of documents and emails, the two pieces painted a story of a DOJ that apparently did not want to prosecute Hunter Biden for anything, even as the clock was expiring on statutes of limitations regarding serious tax charges. Further, the two articles revealed that the attorney Hunter Biden hired, Chris Clark, was particularly aggressive in Hunter's defense so aggressive with the DOJ attorneys he dealt with that he actually threatened to create a constitutional crisis by putting the sitting president of the United States on the stand as a fact witness to defend his client. 
which would have meant that the president was serving as a witness against prosecutors under his own command and authority. But no one but the reporters and editors involved in producing the two stories knows who was the source of the leaks. But if I had to bet, I'd bet the leaks came from Hunter Biden's attorney, Chris Clark, who has now left Hunter's legal team. The two stories together paint a picture of Clark and his team browbeating and threatening DOJ attorneys to get better treatment for their client. At one point, for instance, Clark told DOJ attorneys that bringing charges against Hunter would lead to what he called career suicide for the DOJ attorneys involved. And who knows? He may be right. It makes as much sense as any other theory when you're trying to figure out how DOJ attorneys who had the evidence we've been told about by the two IRS whistleblowers nevertheless failed to charge felony tax evasion against Hunter. On Monday, August 21, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan and House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith subpoenaed four investigators from the IRS and the FBI who were involved in the investigation of Hunter Biden. The four officials were either present or knew of the October 7, 2022 meeting referenced by IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley in his testimony to the Ways and Means Committee, in which Shapley testified that U.S. Attorney David Weiss had told Shapley and his colleagues that he, Weiss, did not have ultimate charging authority in the case and had been denied when he asked his superiors for special counsel status. Weiss, who has now been appointed special counsel, has denied that he ever said that. Jordan and Smith want to hear from these four individuals, three of whom were in the room for the meeting and one of whom heard from Shapley about the meeting later the same day. On Saturday, former Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin, the guy who got fired after then-Vice President Joe Biden demanded his ouster as a condition of delivering a billion dollars in U.S. financial assistance to Ukraine, said in a blockbuster interview on Fox News, that he believed the Bidens, father and son, had been bribed. Quote, I do not want to deal in unproven facts, but my firm personal conviction is that, yes, this was the case. They were being bribed. And the fact that Joe Biden gave away $1 billion in U.S. money in exchange for my dismissal, my firing, isn't that alone a case of corruption? He added. Further, Shokin claimed that Hunter had been brought on board at Burisma to provide protection for the company. Quote, I have no doubt there were illegal activities engaged in by Burisma. It continued to expand, and Zlochevsky, that is the owner, who at the time held the post of minister, started bringing in people who could provide protection for him. Hunter Biden was among them, and the corruption network expanded as a result, end quote, he said. On Sunday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy appeared on Fox News and said, quote, If you look at all the information we've been able to gather so far, it is a natural step forward that you would have to go to an impeachment inquiry. And just so your viewers understand what that means, that provides Congress the apex of legal power to get all the information they need. But now, when you look at this, it looks like a culture of corruption that's been happening within the entire Biden family, end quote. Now to the latest Trump indictment. On Monday, August 14, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, unsealed indictments against former President Trump and 18 of his allies, charging them with conspiring to overthrow the results of the 2020 election. 
Trump faces 13 felony charges, including conspiracy to commit forgery, filing false documents, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer, and violating the Georgia Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, also known as the RICO Act. Other defendants named in the 98-page indictment include former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former Trump attorneys Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, and Jenna Ellis, former Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer, and former Georgia lawyer Ray Smith. The indictment says Trump and the other defendants charged in the indictment refused to accept that Trump lost, and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. That conspiracy contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other states. The Trump campaign put out a statement in response to the indictment, charging that the timing of the indictment, coming after two and a half years of investigation, just as the 2024 Republican presidential primary is kicking into high gear, quote, constitute a grave threat to American democracy and are direct attempts to deprive the American people of their rightful choice to cast their vote for president. Call it election interference or election manipulation. It is a dangerous effort by the ruling class to suppress the choice of the people. It is un-American and wrong, the statement concluded. Here's the problem with this latest indictment of Trump. Though the indictment charges Trump and 18 Confederates with conspiracy, the indictment names no crime. The indictment says specifically that, quote, Trump and the other defendants knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. It is not illegal to change the outcome of the election, or Stacey Abrams would have been indicted for her actions following the 2018 gubernatorial contest in Georgia. Simply adding the word unlawfully to the indictment's description of the allegation does not make a lawful exercise into an unlawful one. On Thursday, August 24, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan sent a letter to the district attorney asking her if she had been in contact with Special Counsel Jack Smith regarding her indictment. Further, Jordan asked her for documents and records related to the case, as he has with earlier prosecutions of Trump. Now to the Jenny Beth Show. The latest episode of The Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. Episode number 26 features Jenny Beth's interview of Marissa Hamilton in Phoenix, Arizona. Marissa is the CEO of an organization called Easy AZ, which tries to simplify the process of campaigns and elections and provide the tools necessary for grassroots activists to achieve victory at all levels of government. And that's our Washington Report for this week.